I'd like to invite you on a walk. We've talked about decadence before in other walks. The cycle where there is a exceptionally effective founder who establishes a space and a series of successions the second or third successor is often the most expansive or or at least the most remembered In the Maurya Empire, you had Chandragupta Maurya, who established the empire, and Ashoka the Great, who put it on the map, really, who established the legacy that would continue in India in some ways until today. Similarly, You have the founder, Julius Caesar, and the establisher of the empire, Octavian, and in both cases, after Ashoka and after Octavian, the end was nigh, at least for that cycle. And later on, the cycle continues. But what we don't talk about often is the fact that this cycle actually continues for scenes, for entire fields and skills. In games, in PC games, this is part of what is known as the meta. In competitive multiplayer gaming, this is a little more obvious because of the nature of competition, of direct competition between human beings and how it affects a community. In the alpha or beta stage of the game, there are often players who come in early adopters who come in with tactics and strategies that worked in previous games and they use those to explore the game and find tactics and strategies that work for this new game. The second generation is formed right after The game is released to the general public, typically within two months to three years, depending on the kind of game and the kind of cycle that it has, the speed of the cycles. Um, In the 90s, this might have been years. By the time I was in my peak gaming 
experience. This was uh, probably six months to a year when the meta, so to speak, would be discovered and disseminated through the dominance of a few players. And you would remember these players, you would know their names, they would popularize their playstyles. When streaming arrived on the map was just about when I stopped multiplayer competitive gaming. And that probably changed the... dynamic a bit, quite a bit in fact, because now you're not just paying attention to the people who are great at the game, at the initial stages of the game, at the politicking of the game, but now you're also paying attention to those who are able to form and maintain an audience online through YouTube or Twitch. And with the streaming, and even before streaming, you will have people collecting data on the nature of the game mechanics and the nature of the game. And the combination of these things allows for a generation to come along that is extremely well suited to winning the game and nothing else. Winning the game within the constraints of the game. Now remember that the initial group of people who were in the alpha and beta and a little bit after that who laid out the tactics of the game were bringing in skills from outside of the game. So you could probably use their performance in the beginning as a measure of their general intelligence in part, or at least their ability to generalize things they knew from the rest of their life to the game. By the time you get three or four generations in, and there are guides online, and there's lots of data and streaming about what makes for a good player in the game and there is a entertainment industry around the game this changes the people who begin to win the game are people who dedicate their themselves to winning the game within the terms of the game and nothing else this is beautiful in its own way However, they get so good at it that now you need a programming team, a dev team, that is continuously updating the game to make things fair because they're really good at figuring out the limits of the game. And when they do that, then everyone tends to do the same thing. And because everyone is doing the same thing, it's kind of boring to play. So the devs typically nerf things, that is, they make certain aspects of the game harder or easier, they tweak stats, say, on the simple end, if you're dealing with a game with, say, strength and dexterity, and there's a playstyle that really uses strength, then they will probably lessen the impact of strength on the game. Eventually, someone will come around with a 
playstyle that uses dexterity, they'll do the same to dexterity, and this will continue for a few years until it gets to the point where everyone is sort of upset and you'll know that your game is balanced by how upset everyone is. Over time, the game loses its spark after it's been balanced in this way because the thing that drew people to the game in the first place was what it said about the wider environment and what it said about the people who were drawn to the game and how they relate to the wider environment. Once the game is in its own almost hermetically sealed world, it loses the spark. And it may take years or decades, centuries, for things before video games that follow this pattern for the game to die. But the moment it's reached this point, the moment the game is played for the sake of winning the game itself, the game has started dying. Mike Tyson, the boxer, touches on this in boxing. He points out that what made Muhammad Ali great was Muhammad's will to win. His primary method of winning was not purely from technique in the game or from raw strength, but from his ability to convince the other person that he was going to lose. And this is a, a general principle of conflict everywhere. The will to win in wars, in competition, is an act of persuasion. And there tend to be people or groups of people who, realizing this within a game, will initially do this naturally, so to speak. You, you'd call this the Chad method, the effortless action, the action that is not as self-reflective, the Muhammad Ali, who might be doing this without realizing why or how he's doing it. He might not think, I have to convince this person to lose, but he will be engaging in the actions that are doing just that. And then at some point, you might have someone like Mike Tyson himself, who's very aware of the nature of illusion, and how the manipulation of illusion allows you to beat your enemies, who will then put on a show as an entertainer in order to game the game. Later on, you might get a boxer like Floyd Mayweather, who can do both, um, who has that illusion, who has that entertaining quality, but also is very technically sound within the game itself. In MMA, Conor McGregor is a good example of this. He's very aware of the entertainment game he's playing, 
at the same time that he tries to be quite technically sound. Though he does have a spirit of the will to win as well, as in Muhammad Ali, which makes him much more entertaining to watch than someone who might be almost purely technical, such as Ryan Hall, who remains one of the most booed MMA fighters, who is very clearly playing to win and not necessarily to entertain and not necessarily to represent something from outside of the game. He is very pure in his pursuit of excellence within MMA. A clear parallel might be the fact that one of Octavian's reputed last words were about whether he played the part well, which suggests a nod and wink to the audience that he was aware of being an entertainer of sorts, someone crafting a specific story or illusion, a play for the world. And after that, you get more practically-minded people. And the moment this happens, by the time you get to someone like Aurelian, or even before that to Marcus Aurelius, the shine of the game is starting to dull. The sharpness of its relevance to the rest of the world outside of it is not as sharp because, again, the thing that brought people to the game was its relevance to life. When we look at the early MMA scene of the 90s, you had a reflection of a street fight. Not necessarily the the heated street fight, but the agreed-upon street fight. The duel for honor, in the sense that you have two people without a weight class or anything like that, going at it until one gives up. And like all scenes, this only has appeal to the competitors themselves more than anything. It has appeal to the people who, in their journey of life, find this game to be just what they need to live and understand their role in life. It is a perfect testing ground for where they're at. And like any game or scene, this costs 
resources. This costs time and money. And as it turns out, sticking to the early purity of the game or scene does not make quite as much capital. So, in order to appeal to a broader audience, in order to appeal to the audience instead of the players themselves, the game has changed. It becomes more of a game and less of an experiment. To appear less like a blood sport, MMA changed its rules. To be more interesting, it shortened the time and introduced rounds. Since striking is far more interesting to an audience that does not engage, that does not actually play the game, then two people struggling to win since that might take a lot of patience and a lot of careful tactics that if you aren't familiar with the game might just look like two people hugging around uh, violently for 15 minutes before any clear decision is made. So just like art scenes before the 2010s, MMA was faced with a choice. And it chose the audience. And in choosing the audience, it turned into a sport for entertainment as opposed to a sport for sportsmen. In the same way that art was turned from an expression or an act of worship to entertainment to be sold. And now this happens at a breakneck pace. You can't really create anything that attracts prestige, that attracts attention, without it being snapped up by the main machine. Once upon a time, scholarship was the domain of people who enjoyed scholarship. In Western lineages, these were often literally monks secluded from the world so that they could go about their learning for the sake of worship, for the sake of understanding the world around them. Over time, as what they produced attracted positive attention, it also became a place to send your less worthy heirs, parts of the elite, parts of the nobility that did not have a place in leading the family or house or business of the next generation, were sent to school were sent to be monks. These cycles occurred again and again 
and the 20th century. Schools went from being a place that the intellectually inclined went to, to a place that you were certified to be a member of the elite. And as time has gone on, bachelor's degrees have taken on the status of high school degrees. And for the most part, you are expected to have a graduate degree, to have a standing as a thinking citizen of the world. But because of this pressure, this pressure to get it for the sake of the prestige within the game, many people who go to college don't actually want to be in college. It's just the best way for them to get the status that they feel they need. And now, instead of going to college to learn a skill or to improve your knowledge, you go to college in order to go to college, in order to be someone who has been to college. The game is now reflective of itself. It is no longer reflective of your capacity in the wider world. People who know the system well can purchase tutors, can read guides, all dedicated to teaching you how to do well in college. But this is no guarantee of how you will adapt in an uncertain environment because the environment of college is very well known. There are many games like this. There are many scenes like this. And it all seems to be coming to a head. And like games, when the game is stale, eventually everyone leaves and finds a new game that is reflective of the wider world. But first, you have to be convinced that the wider world exists. Because if you've identified with the game, if you have trained your entire life to play the game, then seeing outside of it is very painful. And you're not going to do it unless the wider world invades the game in an unpleasant way. So someday soon, and by soon, I mean in our lifetimes, 
there will be a shock to all the games we're currently playing that have extended past their connection to the wider world. We will do well by remembering this when we create new games. This world is yours and it's mine. Oh,